Hello, everyone who's listening out there. I am Jessica Summersell, podcast coordinator for CFRC 101.9 FM. And today we have a special guest sitting here with me on Zoom right now is Georgia. Georgia is a second year English major as well as an outreach executive for Queen's undergraduate Women of Law Club. Her interests lie at an intersection between literature as a driver of social change, politics, and social justice. Queen's Undergraduate Women in Law Club empowers women to be the leaders of tomorrow. QWAL aims to bring women together by providing resources and support for undergraduates who want to pursue a career in law. Hi, Georgia, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, for, to kick it off, Georgia, how did you first get involved with QWAL? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I've always been interested in law, and that's what I want to go into. And I've also noticed that there is a stark decline of women who choose to exit the legal profession um, in their 30s and 40s. And so I think it's equally as important to tackle this issue at the undergraduate level. And so that's why um, I wanted to join a club that empowers women and sort of fosters a community to um, to really just support one another so that um, they can be emboldened when they um, continue on into the profession. Amazing. So today we're going to be chatting about Kamala Harris's recent win as the first woman to be vice president, not to mention she is a woman of color. So Georgia, what are your thoughts on the significance of Kamala Harris's election as the first female, first black person and first person of South Asian descent to be elected as vice president of the United States? Yeah, uh, well, it's been a long time coming and we are finally here. Um, I, I think that this representation is really big for two reasons. You know, first in a political and legislative sense and also reshaping our ideas about what's possible as a black and Indian woman in the United States. So from a political perspective, especially in the United States, there's been a you know, history of historic underrepresentation and systemic oppression. And so, you know, this win is really big. You know, soon black women, Indian women, and I think really all women alike will have somebody like them in the White House. And, and it sort of, it leaves previous, previous administration notions of immigrants are not wanted in the dust. Yeah. Um, and, and with this comes a huge sense of, of belonging. Women and minority groups knowing that they have an important place in the United States picture and that this difference is what makes America richer. But it's also historic because, you know, now these women have somebody in the White House who can legislate on behalf of their interests, you know, be it reproductive rights, policies with regards to immigration. So they have that representation now. But I think as sort of a second part of it, um, now, I think, I think Harris said it perfectly when she said, you know, I think it was, uh, well, I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last because every little girl watching sees that this is a country of possibilities. So yes. in this way, her, her, win is, her, her win is significant to all women of color who dream of sitting in this most powerful office, arguably the most powerful in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this holds the, the potential to change wider perceptions as well. For the next four years, the country will witness a woman of color in a space where no woman of color has been before, you know, leading on, on both a global and national level. And so with that, I think that this presence will have 
um, a major societal impact on even our ideas of, of what a president can be and empower young girls to, to reach for the stars and, and do the same. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that it's going to be exciting to see what she does and also just mm -hmm. her physical embodiment is literally just like a representation of I could be that someday or like she like the absolutely possibilities are endless yeah absolutely my next question is do you think that Kamala Harris being vice president-elect could open more doors for intersectional women in the political world um yeah certainly so uh, sort of like I said before, I think the U.S. has often been dubbed as holding the most powerful office in the world, and this kind of influence and and reach that Harris will have in this position is immeasurable. But you know, even with this election, we saw a significant amount of attention paid to both campaigns from around the world, because I think that U.S. reach is, is as such that countries around the world have, and you know, we've seen this play out in both positive and negative ways, mm -hmm. um, but like countries around the world have invested interests in who takes office ultimately. So uh, I, I think with this reach comes with it an opportunity for this victory to transcend borderlines and inspire women across across the world. And I think even, even um, immigrants who come to the United States, you know, I believe Harris's dad is is from Jamaica and um, and her mother's from India. So mm -hmm. even you know this idea that as an immigrant, this is possible for for you or your children, and that you are a part of this um, uh, of the United States picture. So I think all of this ties into that, and I think I think this win you know is doing a lot for for women around the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now. Kamala Harris's policy about criminal justice remains rather controversial. Can you fill us in on her track record, what she brings to the table policy-wise, and how do you think this looks for women in politics? Yeah, so, you know, I just want to clarify before, uh, I, before I say this that I, I'm no, you know, political science expert. Um, but from my understanding, the controversy is based in um, her proposal and, like, the early 2000s of tough on crime policies that were embraced by many Democrats during this time. So like uh, fighting to keep people in prison, even after they were proved innocent, defending California's death penalty system. Mm -hmm. um, I know that she was strongly opposed to the recreational use of weed and she avoided intervening in cases involving killings by police and, mm -hmm. and not prosecuting cops. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where a lot of the criticism is, is, is based in. But in this campaign specifically, um, you know, her criminal justice reform plan um, very much contradicts this past when she was a prosecutor um, involving policies like scaling back on incarceration, ending the death, sorry, ending the death penalty, um, banning private prisons and, and so on. So we're very much seeing a more um, I think thoughtful and and leaning and lenient and approach to criminal justice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one that puts an emphasis more on rehabilitation than you know her previous policies. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think I think that sort of leads into one of the biggest concerns about um, Harris. Um, you know, as the vice president-elect, and that is that she has not been super consistent with these kinds of policies around criminal reform. Um, I think, but in many ways, we're also seeing her change with the times and mm -hmm. seeing that her policies are reflecting social progress and 
and sort of in that way she speaks on behalf of the people so I would certainly say that this is one of her biggest criticisms um, but yeah. it is certainly not the only part of her platform and you know I think that the way that she's adapted to the world around her is is really telling especially in the position that she's in now you have to kind of be adapting with the times and back in the 2000s mass incarceration was a very big issue I mean it's still a really big issue now but mm -hmm. I, the fact that she's able to like kind of say I made the like backtrack and say I did make mm -hmm. a mistake and this is not something that I believe in now and this is how I'm going to try to do better is like what mm -hmm. we can ask for she is a human at the end of the day right yeah right. so my last question for you is how will Harris's strong activism and media savvy alter the power dynamic in the White House yeah, I think I think what's interesting about, you know, the Biden Harris campaign is that both bring different and unique strengths. Mm -hmm. um, I think age is a big part of this, too. But I think the fact that, you know, Harris does have a broad social media impact um, means that, you know, she is both listening and listened to by um, America's youth. Um, and, and, and sort of in this way, like she has reach and representation that, that Biden doesn't, even in her own identity. So yeah. I think that they both bring these valuable assets to the table. And, you know, they both carry different strengths with regards to representation, experience, mm -hmm. um, so on. So I think what we're going to see is that Harris will not be the kind of um, vice president that will be in the background, um, both in media and in policy making. Um, I think that she will be in the forefront and she will be um, an extremely, extremely active and equal member of, mm -hmm. of, of this duo. Yeah, and I think, again, with the Times, like, everyone's on social media, or at least a lot of us are on social media, and her reach of young people, the turnout for young voters was amazing. Mm -hmm. That change happened because of young voters, and so reaching out in the media is, like, a great way to start. She's also a meme now as well. <laughs> um, don't talk over me meme yeah even that on its own speaks a lot because she's a black woman and black women are so used to being talked over that she had to take mm -hmm. a stand so even that herself like is just strong activism work absolutely yes well thank you so much georgia for coming on air to cfrc 101.9 fm to talk to me about kamala harris um if you guys want to having me yeah no problem if you guys want to see Georgia and Queen's Undergraduate Women of and Law Club are doing, just check out their website to get caught up on any ongoing events. I'm Jessica Summersell. Thank you so much for tuning into The Scoop. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for listening in to CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm here today with Dr. Elaine Power. Dr. Power is the head of the Gender Studies Department here at Queen's University, mainly researching in the areas of feminist food studies and public health, particularly uh, on issues related to poverty, class, food, and health. But, you know, I don't want to steal Dr. Power's thunder, so welcome to the show, Dr. Power. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Hey, thanks, Joel. I'm happy to be here and happy to have the opportunity to talk about things that I really care about. So, uh, as you said, I'm, um, I'm a, my research fits between food studies and public health sociology. I've been at Queen's for about 16 years now. And for many years, I taught um, Health 101, the social determinants of health 
which many students have taken over the years. And now I'm the head of gender studies. Um, I'm also a founding member of the Kingston Action Group for a Basic Income Guarantee. So I've been doing lots of work, political work and advocacy work for um, basic income. And that is very much born out of my interest in food insecurity, food banks, and making sure everyone has an adequate income to have a decent life. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a resume there. And while you were, you were here to talk today about a little bit of the surge of people accessing the food banks uh, and during the pandemic, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, Canada's had food banks for about 40 years. So many of your listeners, including you, probably don't remember Canada before there were food banks. But, <laughs> but there was a time when Canada used income to address issues of poverty rather than thinking that hunger is about food. Hunger is actually about poverty, not having enough money. So food insecurity is a bit of a jargon term, but it, it basically means that people don't have enough money for food or they worry about putting food on the table for themselves and their families. So about 40 years ago, the first food bank um, sprung up actually in Edmonton in 1981. And since then, they've kind of spread across the country as an attempt to alleviate hunger. I think most of us, uh, those of us who have lots of money or who've never had to go to a food bank find it hard to imagine that in a country as rich as ours about over four million people live in households that are food insecure and that includes over a million kids so uh with the pandemic with the economic shutdown that happened because of the pandemic there was a real there was a real rise in the demand for um, food banks because we know the pandemic primarily affected low-wage workers, people who are already living, working at low wage jobs or precarious jobs, um, you know, people working in the service industry and food, and food in particular. So, you know, some people might have a little bit of money put away, but lots of people don't. And so, you know, you can't put off paying the mortgage or paying the rent, but you can always, there's creative ways of making food stretch and going to the food bank is one of those. So that's what we think is going on. It actually turns out in Kingston that the demand for food at the main food bank partners in mission actually decreased when in the spring. And they think that was because of the Canada emergency response benefit that many people were getting benefits and didn't have to, didn't have to go to the food bank anymore, but that seems kind of strange. Um, that's a, an anomaly. In most places across the country, the demand for food has gone up. Yeah, so you were, you were talking a little bit about different people affected and accessing the food banks there. So, and you were talking a lot about low-wage in incomes and so, things such as that. What would you say is the largest demographic that is accessing the food banks right now? Generally, it's people, it's people who are working, who are making, not making enough, maybe they're not working full-time hours, so they're not making enough to cover expenses, or they might be really low-wage jobs. We know that you know, housing costs have really risen a lot, and so housing costs have gone up way more, and food costs, for that matter, um, have gone up way more than wages have. So um, most people who are at the food bank, I think over 60% generally, as probably varies from place to place, um, are actually employed. And then the other large group of people are those on social assistance. And we know that social assistance rates keep people in really deep poverty. 
Yeah, it's kind of uh, contradictory to what they're they're supposed to be doing. Uh, they're supposed to be helping people lift them out of poverty, but then it kind of keeps them there in that same place. Yeah. And so, and and so, just in terms of the types of you know, we know that poverty is more common among racialized groups, indigenous groups, um, young families, you know, families with young children, and single parents, especially single mothers. So. You know, those are the types of, you know, we're, we're talking a lot these days in the era of, you know, social unrest and Black Lives Matter about racism and systemic racism. And that affects uh, workers who then, um, you know, end up living in poverty as well. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. <laughs> Yeah, it is a it is a big problem that you hear a lot on the news nowadays, especially after the events with George Floyd and things such as that, where systemic racism was a a big a big issue in the United States and especially all, most of North America. And now a lot of people like before George, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of people hadn't even really thought of systemic racism as a big problem or threat to you know their livelihood. Uh, and now after this this movement, it's almost, you hear it almost every day, which is amazing because people are actually progressive uh, nowadays versus, you know, a few years ago when people weren't able to actually think about that or how it affected their lives. Yeah, I think we still have a long way to go. We're still just starting to reckon with it. But as you say, at least we're talking about it now. You're talking about... Um, the the influx of the food banks and more people accessing it do you know how kingston or the province of ontario is doing like what they're doing to keep up with the influx of access um well you know the provincial and the federal government have been giving money to food banks and food programs uh to help support people um i think that's disgraceful myself actually the provincial and federal government should be ensuring that um, everybody has enough money to, to have a house, a roof over their head and food on their table. You know, we, we know what the cost of living is. We know what, you know, an average one bedroom apartment costs in Kingston, and we know the cost of a, a healthy basket of food. There's no excuse for not ensuring that everybody has a floor, an income floor underneath them to keep them from falling through. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's really disgraceful that governments are supporting food banks and not supporting people to look after themselves. So you kind of lean more on the side of food banks are a negative impact on society rather than like benefiting them. Do you, what's it, what would you say it would be your solution to the problem? Do you have uh, any ideas on that? Oh, I have lots of ideas about that. <laughs> I, I should just say, you know, criticizing food banks is a bit like criticizing, you know, motherhood and apple pie. Um, people think, I've been told that, you know, I must be a lunatic. And, and uh, I, I say it because what the research shows is that, well, there's lots of problems with food banks. Uh, I think, you know, unless you've had to go to one, it's hard to understand the indignity, the kind of humiliation. It's a sign of really hitting bottom. But um, what, the, what the research shows is that only about one in four Canadians who are food insecure ever go to the food bank. So most of the people who are food insecure in Canada never go to the food bank for a whole variety of reasons. So we can't assume that, you know, food banks are looking after the problem, but they kind of give that illusion. It's a bit of a smoke screen. They think, oh, well, 
it will just we need just need to donate more and there won't be any hunger in Canada. The other issue is that even the people who do go to the food bank are still food insecure. And so what the food banks are doing is only allowing some people to be less hungry. So it doesn't solve the problem. And but it gives us this kind of comforting illusion, those of us who can donate, we have this idea that, oh, they're taking care of it. So I think of food banks as a smokescreen. And that's nothing against the kind and good-hearted volunteers and all the people who donate. I think, I think that shows that we really care, that we don't want people to be hungry. But we need to, in public health, we have this metaphor of thinking upstream. We need to think kind of beyond the immediate problem and understand the roots of it. And that problem is poverty. So as I said at the beginning, I'm an advocate for basic income. Um, and I understand basic income as an income floor that would be available to anybody who needs it, just like Medicare is available to anybody who needs it. And uh, it, would, it, it would allow people to live with you know, some dignity and to be able to go to the grocery store like everybody else. So we had a basic income pilot in Ontario for a very short time in 2017, 2018, until it was canceled by Doug Ford's government. But we had a pilot, an experiment that the Ontario government was going to, was trying to run about basic income, was meant to run for three years. It was only about a year. And people, a single person who qualified got $17,000 a year, which is not a huge amount of money, but it's about double what you get on Ontario Works. So, And although the pilot was cut short, the evidence that we do have shows that people ate better, they didn't go to their doctor as much, uh, people who were skinny gained weight, people who were fat lost weight. Um, people stopped using the food bank. They were able to sleep better at night. Their health improved overall. It, I mean, it's kind of the stories that have come out of the pilot are profound and I think very moving. So a basic income that would bring people up to the poverty line, at least, would have a huge impact on people's health, on healthcare spending, um, and I think unleash a lot of entrepreneurial activity and creativity that we would all benefit from yeah a lot of information there but uh yeah it sounds i know you speak about this in your book case for basic income freedom security justice and i know an email you sent me you talked about uh what was inside that book and about how basic income could benefit so many people, just like you just said, kind of, it would lower the usage of these food banks. Uh, because if you have a basic income, you can actually go to the grocery store and get food that you actually need or want rather than being supplied, whatever is being donated. Yeah, which is which is a lot better and also sustainable. Uh, it's more sustainable than having a food bank because of your a food bank is relying off of donations. Yeah, so um, food banks do rely on donations and they rely on volunteers. Um, you know, th that's been a real problem actually in the pandemic because many of the volunteers across the country are older and are worried about getting sick. So they, they've stayed home. Food banks in some of the large cities in Canada have had to close because they don't, they haven't had volunteers in, in the pandemic. And the donations go up and down and they also are a really variable quality so uh, you know people clean out their cupboards and think oh that can of whatever is 
three years out of date, I'll give it to the food bank, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, you know, it would never, usually at the food bank, they would screen that food, but then they end up having to dis dispose of it. Um, so you're right. Uh, in some food banks have implemented a system where people can actually choose what the food that they want. So then it, at least there's a little more dignity and they don't get food that you know, they don't want. But um, it's uh, food banks are also being used as a place to quote unquote dump food that can't be sold for whatever reason. So it's seen as kind of a green alternative to putting it in the landfill. But I think we need to really think about what we're saying to people if we're giving them food that nobody else wants to eat or buy. Yeah, it's a, in a way, it's sort of demeaning to the people that are, are coming to access these food banks because this, they're kind of on their last limb and they're coming to these places to get uh, help. And then they're, they're just coming to basically, yeah, as you said, quote unquote, a dumping ground of food that just other people don't want, which is very un, unfair. Yeah. And honestly, um, you know, if you talk to anybody who goes to a food bank, they're incredibly grateful for the help and the support. You know, it, this is, and this is not, I'm not trying, I don't want to bash food banks just for the sake of bashing them. I think I'm going to look at the bigger structural issues that create this problem in the first place. You know, the people who run food banks are kind, generous, and good-hearted people. And, and as I say, most people who go are, are very grateful for the help because without that help, they'd be even worse off. But I think that's the problem. We need to um, address the, the real issue here, which is that people don't have enough money. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's a, it's a big issue of people not just having enough money. And you were, you were telling me earlier about how you're doing, you're conducting some interviews with the uh, Queen's Code uh, Rapid Response Grant. That, that was, you were in, you're doing a bit of research into how people not getting the, the federal income for COVID, how they were affected and how they were unable to go get basic food. Uh, do you want to just let our listeners know a little bit about that research? Sure. Um, so the, the CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, you know, I give the federal government a lot of credit for moving really quickly back in March, April, when the pandemic struck to... Put, that was an income floor that was put in place so that people who lost their jobs had some income and $2,000 a month is probably about, uh, it's probably about right. <laughs> um, you know, certainly it's not a huge amount, but it would keep you from presumably from, you know, losing your house or your apartment or not having food. So the research that I'm doing right now is looking at people who didn't get that benefit. And some of them are on social assistance. Others of them didn't qualify for one reason or another. And some of the interviews have literally kept me awake at night just because people's situations are so distressing. Lots of single older women, 55 to 64, who, you know, are kind of not, not eligible for old age, old age security, are finding employers don't want to hire them because of their age. Um, so they might have some part-time work that comes and goes. Their mental health has really suffered. People talk about thinking about committing suicide because they don't see an end to their situation. I've also done interviews with people on social assistance in a few different provinces. Again, the benefit levels are just, they're so low that I've come to think of them as state-inflicted violence. It's really, it's appalling how anybody could imagine living on $700 a month 
is beyond me, especially if you have your mental health challenges or other disabilities. I've interviewed some other women who um, are in their you know, 30s and 40s who've had to move back with their parents because they can't afford a place to live on their own and they've lost work. And so I don't know what it will take to change social policy, but, but I, have to do, I have to do something because it's, uh, it's just appalling. It, it, it's appalling to me. And it, I would say it's a, public, it's a public health crisis as much as um, COVID-19 is. It's very, it's very difficult to see people in such dire times living, as you said, off of, say, $700 a month. Some people might think that's just, like, unthinkable to even go through and these people are doing it every day of their lives and you know there's people contemplating suicide over not having enough money in a country that we call a first world country uh, but our people are unable to you know have access to clean water unable to have access to food or basic human resources at this point and as you said it's it's appalling we can't even sustain our own people well thank you very much uh, dr power for coming in today it was an absolute pleasure well, thank you, Joel, for having me, and um, thank you for your interest in this. Oh, well, uh, that was Dr. Elaine Power. Dr. Power is the head of the Gender Studies Department here at Queen's University. Check out her book, The Case for Basic Income, Freedom, Security, Justice, as well as her lecture, No One Left Behind, Income Security for the 21st Century, uh, at 4 p.m. on December 8th as well as uh, you can check out her website, IncomeSecurity21.com, uh, where you can check out some of Dr. Power's interviews that she did with for her research in income equality and food security. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. Have a great rest of your day, folks. Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.